1: Out of the gates and ready to go. Outkick 360 is underway from 6th and Peabody with Yeehaw Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine. Friday edition. We made it. The CMA Fest edition uh, here in town. Downtown is packed with visitors. It tends to be that way here on the weekends, but especially with CMA Fest uh, in town and happening for the first time in several years. With Chad Withrow, I'm Jonathan Hutton, jam-packed show here. Bobby Carpenter will join us in about 20 minutes. Uh, We will talk all things college and NFL football with Bobby as we do each and every Friday. In hour number two today, Eddie George joins us in studio and later Brent Hubbs of allquest.com with the very latest on Tennessee and the SEC and a lot
0: of headlines in between. Chad, what's up? It's been a week, Hutton. It's been a big week here on the show. A lot of great guests. Uh, CMA Fest is here. Speaking of guests, a lot of guests in Nashville, and we've had a fun with. Uh, we've had a lot of fun with all of it. We got a big show tomorrow without kick the tailgate in Birmingham with the USFL. So excited to get this show going today, and it's always a pleasure to chat with the Adonis Eddie George, good friend of ours, good yeah. friend of the show, who's going to join us coming up uh, in about an hour and fifteen minutes. So looking forward to that. And always fun talking football with Bobby Carpenter. It is a Buckeye Day on the show with Bobby Carpenter and Eddie George both joining us.
1: Yeah, and uh, Eddie does an annual uh, golf tournament here in Nashville to benefit the Middle Tennessee community. And you mentioned the, the Adonis of Eddie George. He, he has a guest list playing in this tournament that is always unbelievable. And he'll have uh, some names for us and how you can be a part of that, uh, if you're, especially if you're an NFL fan uh, from any NFL market, there's reason to visit Nashville next month. Eddie will be in uh, to talk college football, pro football, and uh, tell us about that big event. Chad, Bryson DeChambeau, we knew he was mentioned for the Live Tour. This was going back a couple of months uh, with both him and Dustin Johnson. He's made it official, and the Live Tour made it official. On day number two of the, the London series that teed off yesterday, They've officially announced, uh, announced that Bryson DeChambeau, uh, he is in. And, again, now we wait on other big names. The, the most recent rumors out there um, that have merit, because all these guys have been quote-unquote rumored that have jumped. The next one, Ricky Fowler, Chad, who you mentioned earlier this week, and Bubba Watson also being mentioned for the Live Tour.
0: Yeah, it's uh, – look – Those are the names. I mean, uh, you you go down the list. We know who's been loyal so far. The PGA puts the memo out about loyalty. Jordan Spieth, Tiger Woods. We know some of the bigger names in golf that remain loyal to the PGA Tour, but Bryson DeChambeau is a big name. So that was reported earlier this week. Now it's confirmed by the Live Tour, who made that announcement. Uh, Ricky Fowler, the other one you mentioned, Hutton, Now, to me, it's all a game of what do those 48 look like? We talked about going after the top 100. Well, if you get 20 names that we all immediately recognize in golf, and they're already at probably six or seven, so if that number continues to to tick up and up and up, it's already a problem for the PGA Tour. It's going to be a really big problem for the PGA Tour if they continue to just overbid by a mile and outspend the PGA Tour and guys take the money, take the bag, as they as they put it, then you're going to see more and more of this. I don't
1: know. But I think the PGA Tour knows it can't compete with the money, even right now. Um, but as it was explained to me by someone on the Tour, right now the Live Tour could outspend the liquid assets of the PGA Tour 10 to 1. And when you consider that, and the fact that they don't even have a massive television contract yet, uh, anywhere, but they're, they're already streaming. And everything else that could happen with this, I don't know if it's the right tactic to declare war the way the PGA Tour has, given the fact that for the first time, they've got a legitimate competitor. And when you scoff at that and you say, oh, it's 48 players, and I, I want to reiterate this. There are about 30 to 35 professional golfers that carry the PGA Tour on their back based on their name, image, likeness, their brand, uh, why we tune in. And aside from tuning in for the majors, which are three of the four are going to let these guys play, presumably, if you've got 20 of the 35 names as to why we tune in, that is a huge hit to the PGA Tour who are banning these guys. They're banning their own marketing brands from playing on their tour if they wanted to. Um, to the point where these guys are just resigning to take the bag of cash. It, it, it was an interesting play with the statement, the way they released it. But they had to, in a way, because they had threatened this all along, and these guys called, called them on their bluff because the money's legit.
0: Well, they could have been called on their bluff and showed that they were bluffing and not say anything and allow these guys to come back, but they decided to double down. So I wouldn't say they had to do this. They just decided to stick with what they were doing before no, you, the, and make the statement. They had to do it based on the way the sponsors reacted. Y- I mean,
1: yeah, and, I, and, I, I guess. And, and it has been put out there that the PGA called in major favors to in, to make sure that a TV network did not link up with them. Yeah. So if that, you've done that in the background... That's where they're being helped. But if, yes, if you've done that, then you can't... A month and a half later, when this thing's about to tee off, say, you know what? Go ahead. It doesn't work like that. Well,
0: and what I mean by, again, when you go with the, they had to do this, all I'm saying is, what you have to factor in for the PGA Tour is to come back to those sponsors who say, I'm going to pull my money, since I'm pulling my money from Dustin Johnson or whoever else, if you allow these guys back, you have to start thinking about the opportunity cost of how much less those sponsorships will be worth I agree. If fewer people watch your product because you don't allow but, all these guys back. But here's so what i are worried about. That's looking at the here and now, right? You've got to look at the now. We can't lose these sponsorship dollars. But you also have to look at it a year or two in the future. If we don't allow all these guys back and our product is worse and no one knows the players and no one watches, we're not getting as money from television networks. We're not getting as much money in sponsorship. And that's going to ultimately kill us. But here's the issue of why they had to do what they did with the statement.
1: Because they planted their flag initially on the human rights issues with Saudi Arabia and scoffed at the statement that Phil Mickelson put out there where he acknowledged all of it but said he was taking the money anyway to establish something against the PGA Tour. So that, based on that and the way they, the, the sponsors and the way the PGA reacted, they can't now come back and say, you know what? We're going to lose too much money, so we've changed our stance. Their stance is firmly in the ground based on how they reacted at the time and how the public reacted at the time to the quote by Mickelson. And all along, they could have gone about this the way Dustin Johnson and Bryson DeChambeau and the litany of other guys who stayed silent and knew they were going to do this anyway, and did it, and took the money. Because that's what these major brands have done. When I say brands, the individuals, that's what they've done here. Not everybody can pull it off, but when you have the leverage that these guys do, and when Dustin Johnson is doubling his career earnings over eight events, that, that is, uh, that's something you don't just take lightly if you're the PGA Tour.
0: And they've got a problem on their hands. However you want to stack it up, I don't care if you're the biggest PGA Tour loyalist out there, and I love the PGA Tour because I love watching their events. They're in trouble. However you want to put it, they have legitimate competition now that's taking some legitimate names off of their product and off of their tour. So they got to figure out how to handle that. One thing that we haven't spent a lot of time talking about, Hutton, you mentioned the comparison with F1. And now F1's popularity in American sports. I also don't think this is the last time that Saudi Arabia and Saudi oil money is going to try to incur in American sports. It's happened before, but this is the first real major sport takeover, I would call it. You know, there's been events, there's been money, sponsorship, all of that. But I don't think this is going to be the last time they do it. But the F1 comparison is interesting in that they are trying to make a very slow-paced sport more accessibly fast-paced for today's audience. And what I mean by that is, one one thing that they feature in all these tournaments, they have a countdown clock of holes left. It's a shotgun start. Mm-hmm. They're getting these things in at four to five hours. And you have a running clock at the top of holes remaining whenever you tune in to watch it. That's an interesting difference, right? I mean, everyone that's a traditionalist would say, well... I watch golf because guys tee off at different times, and it takes 11 hours to finish uh, on a day and all that. But isn't that interesting? It's incredibly hard to watch, to, to follow the PGA Tour, though, because of that. Yeah. Now, you, that, that's why. But, and that's where they're trying to be different, you're which is an in, interesting difference. Yeah,
1: you're tuning in for the for the individuals that you want to flip through. But if you're attending the event, um, you're, it's an all-day thing, and it's not like if you go to the morning flight. and the I mean, the morning flight, afternoon flight for these events, it's not like – it, it's a ticket for both. You don't choose one or the other. Um, and if you're that much of a diehard, it's an annual thing, than it is a weekly thing for sure. But the 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 viewership aspect of it, you're not really seeing, but how, what, 30 to 40 golfers on a broadcast, give or take, on a typical broadcast, because they're going to show you the edited version or the clips of what just happened based on a shot. You've got to see if it's not a featured pairing. With With this format... Shotgun start, and everybody's playing at the exact same time. So it's complete wraparound. And it's a a broadcast much like what would be a race or an NFL game where you know within a block of time, you're going to see everything for that day. And the way they've got the streaming set up, you can go back and rewatch it and know that you've seen everything within that block of time and not what's an eight-hour day condensed down to two hours worth of coverage or whatever it might be. Um, and honestly, you're still tuning in to watch Mickelson and Dustin Johnson. They, they paired them together for a reason. And that's, that's the draw. We were interested to see, number one, who was going to be a part of it in event number one. And number two, we're not talking about really anyone other than those two. Um, we know Charles Schwartzel is leading after yesterday, but I didn't see a shot that he hit yesterday. I only saw Dustin Johnson and, and Phil Mickelson, which would be similar, honestly, to watching a PGA Tour event.
0: Yeah. I mean, we're always more engaged when the people we know are at the top of a leaderboard. I mean, that's, that's just common sense for trying to get eyeballs to an event. So they definitely want Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson right now with the group they have, uh, eventually Bryson DeChambeau, whenever he officially joins a tournament. They want those guys at the top of the leaderboard. But the differences in not necessarily the pace, but how the event is paced. It's not like they're you know putting a, a shot clock up and making guys play faster. But the way they're structuring their tournaments is interesting to me. It's going to take a lot of getting used to with the team element of it and the team logos on the side, but that's with anything new. When the teams are going to We're going to talk about this way. with, you know, I've got the USFL shirt on. We're going to be doing the show there tomorrow. You've got to get used to that, too. Yeah. Logos, different teams, caring about them, all of those things. That's always the challenge for anything new. But team golf and getting into a certain team with golf, similar to F1 you mentioned, Hutton, that's going to be new, but the pacing of it and the structure of the tournament from a viewership perspective, while I'm not going to sit here and say it's a no-brainer, this is how events should be done, it's at least piqued my interest enough to see how it goes. And, and what they've done, and I,
1: I'm curious if this part of it continues, and I'm sure there's a reason that I haven't read about or figured out yet, but you know, at the F1, there are 20 drivers, 10 teams, and you pair up that way during the race, and the teams are the same. The F1 uh, Drive to Survive series, I mean, that, that follows and chronicles the rivalries even within the two drivers that are competing for the top spot on the team, for instance. But you're making money off of that through your team. In this setup, the way I understand it is the 12 captains for the individuals on this, on this tour will change up every week And there will be a different draft every week, snake draft, much like fantasy football, by the 12 captains that are a part of the 48 that are playing in this uh, live tour. But on the final weekend, which will be the team format, that will be decided based on tour earnings for that calendar year on the live tour. So the team captains and then the money that you've earned and accrue to that point will determine which team you're going for. And then there's a massive team pool at the end of the line for the winner of that particular tournament. So you can make up to $3 million if you have the lowest team score at the end of the three rounds. And then you're also making what could be the winner's pool for these individual tournaments, which could reach over $4 million. So on any given weekend, you could make $4 million plus split another three to three and a half.
0: It's crazy. And if you're I mean, winning the, the
1: tournament chances are your team is going to be first, second or third yeah. amongst that group. Yeah, the money
0: is just ridiculous. But as the PGA Tour said, you know, you're all tired of hearing about money, money and more money. That's according to the PGA Tour statement when it comes to this tour. I mean, they I think they and
1: the sponsors and and the media and the the viewing public, I was I I thought that the the threat of why film the backlash against Mickelson and How that, I mean, he he was silent for what, a month and a half, two months? We didn't hear from him. Uh, He went into exile. Didn't play in the the Masters, didn't play in the PGA Championship. And the reaction to that, I thought, would keep some of these guys from taking the money. And instead, they just stayed silent and took the money. And then when you actually see that the events themselves are in London, five are in the United States, one's in Bangkok, one's in, in Saudi Arabia, but... So is an NBA preseason game. So, so is the UFC. So is WWE. It, it's not uncommon for this to take place. What is uncommon is the PGA actually has a, a competitor that can pay more than what they've been paying and do more than just threaten to bring one or two guys with them. Just getting started. Bobby, just Carpenter. Getting started. Bobby Carpenter is on deck. He joins us next. We talk Deshaun Watson. Uh, Bobby said yesterday on, through his Twitter account, and I was talking with him earlier, Deshaun Watson initially we thought was looking at around a six-game suspension that's been thrown out there for the last year or so, uh, maybe six months or so, hardcore. Now it's looking like it's going to be more than that, and some are even saying potentially the season. We'll we'll ask Bobby his thoughts. He has opinions on this
2: and much more straight ahead on Outkick 360. What's up, everyone? It's Nick Wright, and I got something exciting to talk to you about today. Angie, your ultimate destination for getting all your jobs done well. Now, Angie isn't just your average home services marketplace. It's a game changer with over 150 million homeowners served and a network of over 200,000 skilled pros or download the app today to discover why homeowners across the nation are turning to Angie to get all their jobs done well.
1: Outkick 360 rolls on across the Outkick Network. With Chad Withrow, I'm Jonathan Hutton. Paul Kuharski back with us on Monday. He's on the beach looking cool somewhere, I can only presume. I was told during the break, and we haven't seen him yet, we're about to, Bobby Carpenter is looking extra cool today we welcome in bobby carpenter you can follow him on twitter oh it is true yes at b carp three on twitter he's got the aviators uh he's sitting in a car uh looking at a what looks like a park or potentially a very (laughs) a very uh
0: well-to-do public's parking lot but not really sure bobby how are you man what's your call sign bobby if you had to go with one right now with those aviators on (laughs)
3: <laughs> that's that's amazing you guys bring that out first of all i just finished up with golf outing i'm up in youngstown ohio and uh i've been doing this thing for the last like 10 years so finally covid you know, they didn't have for the last couple so I, I came up here i wanted to make sure we got done in time so i could be here for you and so that's the background of the golf course uh behind me hopped in the car got a little air conditioning going it's a beautiful day san diego weather like 75 no humidity little breeze um and call sign for me it's, it's a great question. My uh, co-host on my morning show in Columbus posed it to me. By the way, I have seen Top Gun Maverick three times now, and it's, I'm telling you, it holds up, man. You can watch that thing over and over again. Three weeks, three um, viewings. Three, three weeks, three viewings. <laughs> saw with my parents, my wife, my kids. Combinations of all of them, kind of mixing through. But you know, my they used to they always called my dad Carp when he played. They started calling me that uh, when I was in high school, and then one of my buddies started calling me Big Fish because carp obviously being a fish. So I was throwing this around. I'm the third, so my call sign trip, it's okay. I think call sign big fish, though, that's probably the way that I'd go with it.
1: That's, I like both of those options. Great. I like both of those options. Um, We've got Eddie George coming in. Thank you for coming on earlier than usual. Um, Did uh, the former, uh, both of you Buckeyes, did you meet on the the field in the NFL ever?
3: So Eddie finished up. In his last season in Dallas was 2005, which was my senior year. But I I do have a great Eddie George story for you guys. Um, So, my senior year, he's the honorary captain against Michigan. We're up there. You know, we have a great comeback, unbelievable pass from Troy Smith to Anthony Gonzalez that helps catapult us to victory and, you know, the waning moments of the game. And I broke my ankle to start uh, the second play of that game. First defensive play, I snap it. And so I didn't really get a to play. But I had carried this bottle of Crown around with me. I had a nice handle of it that I had that we played Texas earlier that year. And I had planned on cracking that thing open in the locker room after we beat Texas. It was a night game. By the time we got done, the bars would be closing up. So I'm like, we're going to get this party started and get it rocking. Well, unfortunately, we didn't win that game. So I lugged that bottle around all season. So we finally beat Texas. And I'm like, this, or beat Michigan. I'm like, this is the time we're going to open it. So we get out the little Gatorade cups you always see them used on the yeah. sidelines or in this crown around there and I look over in the corner and like Eddie's standing there after the game and, and like I mean dude, this is Eddie George dude he's he a Heisman Trophy winner you know he played in the Super Bowl unbelievable player dude that like he's 10 years older than me a guy who I grew up watching like wanting to be Eddie George and right like, Eddie like, you, you want to get in this and he's like Hell yeah, it comes running over. And I'm like, it was, it was literally, I go, we'd beat Michigan on the road up in Ann Arbor, and I'm doing a shot of crown out of a Gatorade Cup with Eddie George in the locker room. go, like, this is the greatest point in my life. Like, I don't know if it would ever be able to be topped. And you know, since then, we've become good friends. And, you know, he's awesome dude, physical specimen, even, you know, approaching 50 years old. And the stories of him, are legendary for his workouts at Ohio State. I mean, Eddie is one of the toughest guys, biggest grinders you're going to find. And to be able to share that moment with him, a dude who like I grew up watching, it was truly surreal and amazing. So I am jealous for you guys getting a chance to sit in with him for an hour. Because as you guys know, if you've met him, I mean, he's he's a remarkable human being.
1: So so just so I have the the story correct, this is the same day that you broke your ankle, the same game.
3: Same game. I break my ankle. Literally the first defensive play. We kick off. I come in. They run a uh, draw and I'm like trying to get back inside. My foot gets stuck in the turf. Jake Long's leaning into me and boom, that thing snaps. And that is my last play at Ohio State. Uh, We played Notre Dame in the bowl game. Couldn't make it back for that either. But yeah, it's snapped my ankle and that was that was it.
1: Bobby Carpenter, our guest on Outkick 360. I, I saw the tweet. I want to get perspective on this. And you do a daily show in Ohio. Uh, when, and that certainly factors here, too, because you're talking this literally all the time, every day. Deshaun Watson. Um, as, as this progresses, in the court of public opinion, I mean, that's what he's battling right now and has been for the last few months, for sure. The suspension seems like it's growing. And I know you, you had a, a Carp's Corner about this. With the independent investigation we presume coming to an end at some point here soon, do you get the sense that it's a the hammer's going to drop for more than what was a presumed six-game-ish suspension from the NFL if we were having this conversation a month ago?
3: There's a couple facets to this. I don't think the NFL likes to go back and have to re – legislate re-adjudicate whatever however you want to say it go back and then look at this one more time and analyze what happened and then tack on games to a suspension because they don't want to look like they don't know what's going on and so you you saw that happen with ray rice obviously you know he comes out his wife and then they have the video and that changes everything so i don't know how much they know they that there may be more lawsuits coming more women i i I would i'm going to go under the assumption that they know more than we do and that they know everything you know they have a uh, federal judge who's going to be presiding over this and i, I have a feeling that they've investigated it as thoroughly as possible probably more thoroughly than the cleveland browns and so when they they swing on this i feel like they're going to probably err on the side of going a little harsh just in case something else comes out And they'll, because people like, okay well that seemed rough well you know what if something else drops, then then it doesn't look like they got caught with their pants down. So what I thought could be four to six, maybe eight games, I'm now looking at guys like, and you hear um, you know, Andrew Brandt and a bunch of other people start talking who are pretty knowledgeable. They talked to the league where it wouldn't be surprised if, if they he didn't play this year, which I don't know if that's the favorite in the clubhouse right now, but you have to think that that's a realistic possibility. So I'm of the belief now where I'm thinking this thing is going to probably be in excess of 12 games possibly up to an entire season because if you read through the stuff like the fact that it's 23 and 24 i don't think that that matters as far as the number but it's the graphic details and it's the things that this is starting to become like the johnny depp amber heard trial where i mean there's some salacious stuff and i don't think the nfl enjoys this constant trickle of news where we're sitting here always talking about this and it's stuff that's you know for women and they're trying to expand their their viewing audience Right, wrong or indifferent. I mean, that's the goal of the NFL. And they've done it with you know, breast cancer awareness and all these other things. Football is family, all these campaigns. And this turns off a lot of women. And so the fact that, you know, if they look like they went easy on someone who is being accused of some particularly, you know, ridiculous things that are that that seem pretty egregious, I think that they're probably gonna look at this and probably go a little firmer. maybe people expected
1: and this will also be a a talking point after the suspension comes down if it includes especially if it includes more than half of a season let's just hypothetically say the way his contract is structured and the way the nfl fine system goes into effect he will be fined based on his base salary for this upcoming season which is a million dollars it's a fully guaranteed contract, but just over a million dollars of that for this year is the base salary that the NFL will base that fine on, and that is collectively bargained. So that's, that's going to be the next piece of this is the Browns contract really protects him monetarily from anything he may be missing other than snaps on the field for Cleveland. He's not going to be hitting the pocketbook all that harshly based on the contract that he just signed.
3: You know, he's missed a lot of time. You look last year; yeah. you know he didn't play at all because they didn't try to force him on. So he received his entire paycheck for last season. And it's a great point, Hunt, what you bring up—the fact that he'll be fined a percentage of a million dollars. And so you look; he got forty-six million in his signing bonus to help cover that up. So I do think that, that is something. It obviously it helped the Browns with their salary cap situation this year. But like, let's make no mistake about it—that was argued and probably help forced in by Deshaun Watson's camp in anticipation of this. So I I don't know what the NFL would be able to do. I've heard that there's language in the contract that would be able the Browns to potentially void this where it references the 22 allegations and 23 and 24 would be outside of that scope, which could potentially violate the terms. And there's more out there. Maybe I don't know if he wasn't honest, but here's the reality for the Browns outside of the salary cap implications of, you know, if they could get out from under his deal, they gave up three first-round picks to get him, and I think they're willing to see this through. Like they're not going to let him go because of the talent he has and their ability to win. They believe in this tight window. They're not going to give him up, and so I, I think the Haslam's are, are they're they're stuck in this. They understand what's going to happen, and they're ready to ride out this storm, however long it may take.
0: So, Bobby Jack Del Rio. With Washington, the commanders had his statements where he referred to what happened at the Capitol as a dust-up. He came out later that day and he apologized. And now Ron Rivera, his head coach, has come out today and issued a lengthy statement and fined him $100,000 for his comment. And that will be a donation to the United States Capitol Police Memorial Fund What do you make of this entire story and the reaction to it from media members?
3: Well, I mean, we live in a overreaction society and everything that somebody says is always the most offensive and egregious thing. Could he have used better terms? Probably. Now I wouldn't have said it's a dust up. I heard people saying they're trying, you know, it was almost a toppling of the government. I'm like, I'm going to show you what a toppling of the government looks like. You go to third world nations when there's coups and they take over the capital. And they execute people like that's what a toppling of the government looks like. I mean, you go back and look to the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, like all these different things. You know, the communist overthrow in Cuba. Like you literally go in there and you're executing humans. There was no one that was killed on that day, at least not to my knowledge. Now maybe there were, but I, at least to my knowledge, so I wouldn't have called it a dust up. I don't think that that's an appropriate term. You know, Jack. You know, he's, I think he's in his sixty years old or right around there. I mean, he's been doing this for a long time. You know, the $100,000 fine, I think, you know, and the fact that it's Washington and we looked at everything is surrounding the commanders with Dan Snyder and all that. Like, there's a lot of factors that go into this. But I, I think that there was it was a lot of pandering, like, hey, we're trying to make people happy, because if you look at the Washington situation, I mean, they're in, they're in a bad spot politically. They've got a lot of heat on them from a lot of different areas, from the NFL to Congress, you know, to everything else. And so with that, I think this was probably them saying, we, we have to do something. And they, they throw Ron Rivera out there, and he's been the guy that's had to take it all and take all the bullets. And so he had to go out there and probably issue this, this fine. And you know what? Going to the Capitol Police, good for them. It, it's it's a worthy cause. And hopefully they get you know, some of the funding that they need. And this goes to the memorial. And the people that obviously need to get it, get it. But I I think that it was probably as much a, Political statement for them to make sure that they try to get back in their good graces as anything else.
0: So, Buckeyes fans out there, and you're you're a Buckeye alum, they they must be a little bit happy that the uh, grandson of Lloyd Carr, CJ Carr, a five star quarterback, decides to not go to Michigan, but he is committed to Notre Dame. And I love the uh, the secrets where he tries to put the Notre Dame hat on his granddad, Lloyd Carr. His father played quarterback. At Michigan also, I should say that as well. Uh that's a big get for Notre Dame. That's a big swing and a miss for Michigan, Bobby.
3: Yeah, that's a huge get for Notre Dame, a huge get for Marcus Freeman to get a five star quarterback. Because if you look over Brian Kelly's tenure, you know, that's the one thing they had. Deshaun Kaiser, but outside of that, they've really never had that elite quarterback. So maybe Carr gives them that ability. But I mean, think about this. There's two Big Ten programs in Michigan and Nebraska where there's two five-star quarterbacks that are coming up, Dylan Rayola and then Carr. Uh, Dylan's father, Dominic Dominic Rayola, played. I played with him in Detroit. He played with Scott Frost at Nebraska. He was a center there. His brother, who played at Wisconsin, is their offensive line coach. He's coming to Ohio State, and now you have Carr, whose grandfather was the head coach at Michigan, is going to Notre Dame. And I just think about, like, how hard it is – to screw something like that up. Like how how difficult that must be where you have an alum who their kid wants to go there, or grandson, or whatever it might be, and you can't get that done because of the offense you run or the fact that you're there's there's a level of ineptitude where it's not appealing for the program anymore. And that that is almost befuddling to me.
1: Bobby Carpenter, our guest. Bobby, final thought for you uh, here. Aaron Donald gets paid. Uh, they give him a raise. It's not an extension. It's just uh, a restructure. Some would say, and uh, Armando Salguero at the site said, hey, he's still underpaid, even if you look at his contract versus value on the field. Is he the best player? Um, I, I nearly said best defensive player, but from through your eyes, like just pound for pound, if we want to refer to this as a, a boxer, is he the best player in the league? Is he worth exactly what the Rams just paid him?
3: I mean, you could make the argument that he's the most dynamic defensive player since Lawrence Taylor. And if that's the case, I mean, I think you've got to put him in that category. So to be the highest paid player who's a non-quarterback, yeah, it makes a lot of me. Like I'm sitting here looking around, you look at how he impacts a game in both the run game and the pass game. The fact that you can double and triple team him and he's still able to be productive. And, and on top of all that, guys, let's not forget this. He's a great dude in the locker room, and he's a great team leader, and he is a vicious competitor. And so you need to reward the characteristics that you want to have. And Aaron Donald embraces all those on top of the fact that he's an elite player. And so I know that they – Matt Stafford they paid. I mean, you got Cooper Cup they paid. They've got Jalen Rams. They've got all these guys – I'll have to take a look at their salary cap and how they're trying to figure that thing out. But you had to pay that. No one wanted to be the guy that Aaron Donald retired or holds out and doesn't play for you that you have to trade because he's unhappy with his deal when he's still in the prime of his career.
1: Follow Bobby on Twitter at Bcarp3, or you can find him at a golf course near you. Appreciate you as always, bro. Um, You're the man, and we will catch up with you next week.
3: Hey, thank you, gentlemen. You guys have a good weekend.
1: The best. Bobby Carpenter uh, with us each Friday. Talking college and pro football headlines.
3: I thought Bobby
0: would be happy with that. His former teammate at Ohio State stealing uh, CJ Carr from Michigan, Lloyd Carr's grandson. Uh, Odd. When I saw that story, I was thinking, man. Well, and it's. uh, I I read one story about his comments growing up where he was even saying as a young guy, and they're a big Michigan family, and he's a big Michigan fan growing up, but he said, "I, I don't know how you grew up in Ann Arbor and didn't want to get away. To his dad, who played for his granddad at Michigan as the head coach, saying, "I'm not going to do that." So it was pretty settled early on that he was not going to follow that path, and he was going to go somewhere else other than Michigan.
1: You can go somewhere else other than Michigan, but like it's like, um, let's look at it from an SEC standpoint. That's like Alabama. I don't want to follow in the footsteps of Bear Bryant, so I'm going to go play at Auburn. Well, or and- I'm going to go play at Tennessee, like.
0: It sounds good, right? Like, it sounds like, okay, he's going to do something different, but it's still surprising when push comes to shove that they don't just go with what they know and go with their family. And their family is still close. It's not a family issue or anything that he decided to go to Notre Dame when he wanted to go. Rodgers
1: family No, they're
0: talking to each other. (laughs) You know, his granddad, Lloyd still talks to his grandson (laughs) that that I know of. So it's definitely not an Aaron Rodgers-type situation, but it made me immediately think of when Peyton Manning went to Tennessee – That was the first to buck the trend. His dad, obviously, Archie was a great quarterback at Ole Miss. His older brother was a receiver at Ole Miss. So Peyton going to Tennessee was going against the family school. And it was shocking at the time. We see more and more of it now, but it's still always a notable story when that happens. And then you look at Arch Manning, who it looks like he's going to go to Alabama, Texas, or Georgia. That's his final three that he's announced. So he's bucking the trend of – his dad, his granddad, and his uncles there's a very, also
1: not going to any of those schools. There's a very interesting story in regards to the recruitment of Peyton Manning that Philip Fulmer will tell us on Monday. Um, I did an event with him recently, and I brought up Arch Manning and asked him about what he must be going through at his age and the family dynamic because Fulmer played – on an opposite sideline in 1969, I believe, against Archie Manning and Ole Miss. And he went off that day, Manning did, on Tennessee in the Vols and Fulmer at the time on the offensive line. Um, so they didn't meet on the field, but they were rivals on the field that day, of course. And I asked him, I said, look, 25 years later, you're, re- you're in the living room with Archie Manning recruiting his son. Olivia's in the kitchen. Right? You've got this dynamic of the rival on the field versus now recruiting him to the opposite sideline. And he has a great story uh, of what it's like to go through the recruitment process and what he would say is probably happening right now with Arch Manning or has been happening with Arch Manning. Same thing happened with Eli. Uh, Philip Fulmer with us on Monday. Expecting Eddie George here in studio with us coming up in about 30 minutes when we come back. Uh, a story last night with Tony La Russa, which I do not understand how this happens. I don't know how this happens in the middle of a game where there's a batter. The count is one ball, two strikes, and the manager in the White Sox dugout tells the pitcher and catcher to throw three straight balls and put the man on base. And you can imagine how the story ends with the next at bat. We'll try to talk through, if it's possible, what Tony LaRusso was thinking last night. Next on Outkick 360. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
3: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking
0: requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
1: The count is one and two. It was zero oh and two. And then the pitcher bounced a slider. <laughs> Freddie Freeman, Freddie Freddie takes Freeman second. took second. Outkick 360 rolls on. First base is now open after Freddie Freeman took second base and Tony La Russa for the White Sox decides to walk Trey Turner and
0: the next batter hits a home run. Max Muncy comes up. All about the lefty lefty matchup. Batter it hits is a homer. amazing to me how baseball coaches managers can overthink things. And I see this all the time with bullpen management. When a guy is rolling for instance, in your bullpen, do not overthink the righty-righty, lefty-lefty matchup. If a guy's rolling, let, let him get the next guy out. Let, let him keep going. Getting to your bullpen too quickly and going away from starters who are having a good game happens all too often. But intentionally walking a guy, telling him to take first on a 1-2 count where it was 0-2 and the first ball was something we were trying to get him to chase and it gets away from the catcher and the guy takes second is Terrible. And Tony Larusa, I mean, when asked questions about it, looking at the media like, you're the idiot, it's not me. He's like, I wouldn't have been able to live with myself if Trey Turner would have gotten a hit and scored. You know, Max Muncie hinted, that's unfortunate, obviously. But if it was Trey Turner, lefty versus righty, I wouldn't have been able to live with myself had I gone forward with the 1-2 count.
1: So it's crazy. The, if the base is available as Trey Turner comes to the plate, I understand it. Yes. Uh, because Muncie's coming off an 11 game absence. And prior to that, he was not hitting well at all. Um, he entered hitting 150. You know, Trey Turner was hitting 303. So if the base is available, fine. But the fact that it's, you have two strikes on the at-bat and you're just looking to get to the next guy is it's just bizarre. And the, the, the broadcast, screaming. You know, you've got two strikes. The reaction by Muncy, by the way, as he comes across home plate is epic. And Muncy, to his credit, after the the game said, hey, look, the baseball guy in me understands what I represented in the on-deck circle. Like, I have not been playing well. I've been hurt with an elbow issue. And I realize that my numbers this year are not Trey Turner's numbers. But,
0: but he also said, it, but it's tough to walk a guy with a one-two count. Yes. I also understand yes, that I would have a hard time potentially like, walking someone at one-two. And, Chad, it's not like this is
1: the, – the, the idea that if the base is open, you walk the guy has been in baseball for yeah. decades. But Tony LaRusso being the guy who decides to do this when he's already being questioned for, for decisions that he's making in the White Sox dugout – um it's not good in in fact like I don't think it's an over reaction by some to say like this guy is not capable of making the correct call in a precise moment and I don't know how the camera shots in the White Sox dugout were not more apparent about what just happened you know we're seeing the Muncie reaction can you imagine what it was
0: like in the clubhouse for Chicago well, you know the White Sox broadcasters. and Everyone's like, "Oh, please, just don't get a home run right here. Please don't hit a home run." And then when he hit the home run, it's like, "Oh, of course, he hits a home run after that decision." I, I was honestly thinking, "Is there going to be some sort of coup where they don't follow his instructions?" You know, but there's no, there's no choice, there's no chance yeah, you're right. for that you're because this. he just goes to the umpire and says, "Take, take first." <laughs> so it's not like he could give the signal to intentionally walk, and the pitcher's looking over like, "What?" And then they just decide not to do it, or the third base coach or whoever would be the third-base coach of the Dodgers, but you get my point. Yes. Some other coaches doesn't relay it to the pitcher. This is Tony La Russa standing out of, the, out of the dugout and saying, take first, and his team looking around thinking, what in the world is going on right well, now? Well, it's
1: like, um, imagine the umpire and his reaction as La Russa tells the You want to do play- what? Yeah. I mean, because sometimes in the NFL, you will see, you'll see the, the head official, the white hat, mouthing mimicking like telling the the other coach like hey it's going to be this it's going to be lost it down do you want to accept this they'll kind of tell you what's going to be the, the situation especially in the preseason uh, not the case here the umpire is just like what you you want to put him okay trey take first
0: well, and it's also... I mean, Tur- it, it,
1: Turner's reaction was, I guess they yeah, must have really it, liked the matchup.
0: It also <laughs> reminded me, uh, funny enough, of Major League Two, where they intentionally walked a guy to get to Jack Parkman, who had killed Rick Vaughn uh, throughout the season. And the announcer said, well, you know, obviously the thinking here is, well, I don't know what the hell they're thinking right now when they do that. That's that's the line that should have been used uh, from the White Sox broadcast crew when that happened. It, it was, It was nuts. And... It just shows. Dodgers one by you, two. If by you the believe Tony La Russa, yeah, it was seven to five at, the, at that point, and that made it nine to, or a ten to five. They ended up losing what eleven to nine. Eleven to nine. So yes, that would have been the difference in the game had that not happened. If you are of the belief that Tony La Russa is too old and too out of touch to be doing this right now, you got some more evidence to prove that. Yesterday, would that move?
1: Is there some question about whether that was a good move or not? That that was LaRusse's first response. Um, and then he, he went into the stats about the what Turner hits it's like against you, left. You
0: guys are the ones that are being controversial by I, saying that's not the perfect I post.
1: just know that the stats show that it was a one-two count. Yes. With a runner on second.
0: Yeah, and you're right. No one's questioning it if first base was open to begin with. Right. Absolutely not. Coming up in 20 minutes, Eddie George will be on the show.
1: When we come back, we've got headlines for you, Uh, 360 headlines, including Aaron Rodgers and much more. That's all straight ahead from 6th and Peabody. It's Outkick 360 across the Outkick Network.